This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, nice to have you along this afternoon. You're going to spend a bit of time looking overseas today because just a couple of weeks ago, that very same day that you went to the polls in Australia to decide on the voice referendum, New Zealand also went to the polls to decide on its government. You might wonder why the WA Country Hour is looking at New Zealand politics. Well, the National Party won and with a coalition is set to form government. One major Australian exporter is tipping that while Australia is phasing out live sheep exports, a change of government in New Zealand will bring a return to its livestock export trade. You'll hear more about that before half past 12. We head to Mushe for the results of today's cattle sale before one o'clock. And have you ever considered a career change. This afternoon, you're going to meet a bloke who's gone from working as a sparky to growing mushrooms. Yeah, I had a mate in Geraldton who is a vegetarian and started growing his own mushrooms for his own purpose. And he gave us a grow bag one day of lion's mane. And I guess that just kicked off the interest in the whole mycelium world. It was a lot of trial and error to begin with, but we think we pretty much nailed it. You'll hear more of that story a little bit later today. And if you'd like to get in touch, 0448 922 604. Send a text, that number 0448 922 604. And let me know, are you happy to hear the trade negotiations between Australia and the EU look to have fallen over? Are you happy or Were you disappointed to hear the news? That is the big news of the day. It appears that trade talks between Australia and the European Union have once again failed. After five years of negotiations, Trade Minister Don Farrell has been holding the final rounds of talks with his EU counterpart on the sidelines of the G7 Trade Ministers meeting in Osaka, Japan. Australia wants greater access to the lucrative but notoriously protectionist market, but the EU returned with its same offer which had been rejected earlier this year. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says the deal on offer wasn't in Australia's best interests. We've made a number of concessions throughout the process and again we're willing to do that uh, in Osaka, obviously up to a point. We're not ever going to be doing a deal where we sell out Australian producers or sell out the Australian national interest altogether, but we were willing to make some concessions and the EU was aware of that. Uh, But I'm not sure whether it was about the impending election cycle that's coming in the EU uh, or the political influence of their farmer lobbies, but we just weren't able to see the EU increase its offer for things like beef, sheep, dairy, sugar, enough for us to think that this deal was in Australia's national interest. So in this agreement, the EU was wanting greater access to Australia's critical minerals. It wanted Australia to abolish the luxury car tax to impose new farming practices on Australian producers and to ban Australia from using product names, including parmesan, mozzarella, feta, 
and Prosecco. Despite today's news of the negotiations failing or stalling, President of the National Farmers Federation, David Yohinki, says he's still hopeful an agreement can be reached. We're not going with the narrative that um, all hope has been lost in this round at the moment. We are understanding that there's still meetings being held, of which we've made it very clear of what our asks are around agriculture and noting that there hasn't been a lot of movement. But once again, we, we've been in constant contact with both Mr Minister Farrell's staff um, and directly with himself. And we're supporting his current stance and how he's working with industry to try to get an outcome. You mentioned there, you've made it very clear what our asks are. Just in, in brief, what would you like to see happen as part of this deal? What we're not seeing so far is a commercially uh, attractive deal for agriculture to get our agricultural products into what is a very large marketplace for us. And so a marketplace that we already have very strong um, trading ties with. So when we talk specifically, it is around getting better access for beef, getting better access for sugar and getting better access for our cotton. Um, and overall, there is obviously other concerns around, as mentioned at the start, how we trade with the EU and what some of the regulations and asks that they have upon Australian agriculture. Let's say this is dead in the water and, and the negotiations have failed. How will that affect farmers around the country? Well, once again, we're, we're not running with that at the moment. We're definitely I know you're not running with that line, but I know you're not running with that line, but surely you've, you've sort of mapped what could happen here if the negotiations fail. Potentially, these are hypotheticals, sure, but how would that affect farmers around the country if they do fail? Well, um, what we're going to be asked is that the conversations are adjourned and we can, can still continue to have those conversations. And obviously, if we're not getting good access to these markets, um, we'd prefer a no deal than a deal. So if the talks are heading in the direction that they are, we would rather reset, recalibrate and uh, ensure that we can still continue to do the trade that we have got with the, the EU and the current conditions and also make sure that um, any other trade agreements that are on the on the horizon also are beneficial for agriculture. So for us, yes, it will be a missed opportunity um, if, we, if we can't secure a better deal. But once again, um, Australian agriculture has many markets. Um, we would like to be participating in the EU market, but we're not going to do it at any cost. When we look at why it's been so difficult to agree to a trade deal, I mean, one of the issues is naming rights, right? I mean, the EU is not budging on these naming rights. I mentioned a few of them in the introduction, Prosecco, Feta, Mozzarella, Parmesan. Why is that such a crucial issue? How much would losing those naming rights cost Australian farmers, David? Well, there's a few um, parts to unpack there. First of all, it is the descriptor. When you go to the supermarket and ask for feta, everybody knows what feta is, everyone understands what it is, and everyone understands its characteristics. So to replace that with an Australian-based name would take a huge undertaking for just both education in the Australian market, let alone then how we would introduce that to our other markets overseas. And secondly, in Australia, we are a very um, inclusive culture. We, we have these names because we've had generations of... Um, immigrants come to Australia and bring their their flavours, their tastes with them and we feel that it would be a loss if we were to just give those those naming rights up, those those um, descriptor names without having some meaningful concessions back. So for us, we're not interested in, in changing those names. Um, obviously, uh, everything is needs to be negotiated and worked through but we've got a sense that we we are a part of those names as well our producers are a part of those names and we have 
some wonderful product here that can only be described very similar to those um, traditional locations or those traditional ways of making these products. For us at the moment as a whole, um, we're team agriculture. We're looking to get the best deal we can for everybody. Um, and we're not sure exactly where that lands at the moment. And once again, we still believe those conversations are still have a chance, but um, we still want to have negotiations to continue regardless of the outcome. That's the president of the National Farmers Federation, David Johinki. He was speaking with News Radio's Thomas Ariti. Cojanup farmer Steve Maguire is the vice president of WA Farmers and he's also a member of the National Farmers Federation's Trade Commission. His main problem with the proposed deal was it didn't give Aussie farmers enough access to EU markets. The last agreement was done 50 years ago and we've been trying to change it ever since. They've done agreements with South America, Canada and New Zealand and we probably we just wanted the same access that they had so that we could compete with them, but they really weren't prepared to give us that. Dairy was really going to cop it with a lot of the trade names and um, the geographical names because I must point out it wasn't just sort of names of cheese going back into Europe. It was also if they could use those names into other markets such as Asia. It was going to cost the dairy industry $90 million to change over their labelling and so on. And it was, yeah, the access into other markets was going to be affected as well. The EU sends about 70,000 tonnes of dairy into Australia and we send 500 into the EU. So they already had us a pretty good advantage. So, Steve, it sounds like sort of the dairy producers would have been impacted the most by these name changes and, and potentially impact on their overseas markets. Yeah, they were the most, but it does go across all, all categories as beef, lamb. Uh, they were also going to be affected. We don't have much access with lamb into EU, going back to the old EEC agreement in the 70s. We sort of got the wool and New Zealand got the lamb in there. That's changed a bit because the UK has broken out of the EU and so we've done an agreement with them recently. So that's good. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's not a lot more than just the dairy, but the dairy was the one that was probably going to cop the most. Okay, let's look at some of the, the other aspects then because you're a sheep producer. So for, for beef and sheep farmers who would have welcomed greater access to European countries for high quality red meat products, which is what they want, what happens there? Because there would have been people that would have wanted this deal to go ahead, wouldn't there? Yes, definitely. But we weren't getting it. They were not putting it on the table. And the, I was in Canberra last week for the National Farmers Federation Conference and the rumour was that the Europeans weren't bringing much more to the table in Osaka. So the question was really, was the government going to hold the line? Sorry, you guys are two-way going off. Um, and, and look, I, I do get it. EU's 27 countries. It would be like herding cats trying to get them all to agree to something, and it is. Yeah. Does the government need to keep negotiating here, Steve? Yeah, they do. Like, we, the door's always open. They think it's probably going to come off the table with their elections coming up now, with their elections, not ours. You never say never, but we've been trying to get access for 50 years, so another year or two, you know, we'll still pay to keep at it. Yeah. If we're walking away from, from a deal that we no one's willing to compromise on, could it be years before we get anything? Yes, uh, definitely years, but hopefully not decades. Um, but, but you've got to understand the deal wasn't giving us anything. That's, that's why we're walking away from it. We weren't getting access of any, of any um, really relevance or scar. It's Cogent Up Farmer Steve Maguire. He was speaking with Nadi Mitsopoulos on today's morning show. He's also a member of the National Farmers Federation's Trade Commission, speaking there about 
that stalling of the trade agreement discussions between Australia and the European Union. Are you disappointed to hear that news or are you happy about it? Do you agree with Steve? Was there nothing in it for you? Was there any value for your operation? Let me know, 0448 922 604. Send me a text this afternoon. It's 17 past 12 on the country hour. Staying overseas and the shipping company Wellard is watching New Zealand politics very closely at the moment in the hope that the new government will remove the current ban on live animal exports. The National Party is set to lead New Zealand following its election on the 14th of October. It didn't get enough votes to lead outright and will need to form a coalition. The details of that are expected to be finalised within the next week. But Wellard's executive chairman, John Klepek, says he's expecting New Zealand's live export trade to be resurrected next year? Uh, we're watching the New Zealand politics closely and uh, uh, actually quite uh, happy with the result that occurred uh, a couple of weeks back with the change of government. Jacinta Ardern uh, took it upon herself to um, ban the trade, uh, which happened in April of this year. Um, and following that, that did suck forward a bit, a bit of uh, uh, volume in, into the Chinese uh, dairy uh, breeder market. And um, since then, we've seen a, a complete halt in that trade. Um, that was a significant part of um, our business in the last two years when the, you've had the drop off in the, um, the volumes of the other market. The, the dairy uh, breeder trade to China for actually the last three years has been very solid. Uh, in round terms, that market's you know, um, 200,000 to 220,000 head a year. Um, and so so small... has Australia benefited because of that no, uh, trade ban in New Zealand? No, no. Uh, look, the trade has been so strong that virtually everything has been mopped up uh, that was available. And uh, China has to rebalance its market as well. The demand for the dairy breeder has fallen away while they readjust. So that, that market, you know, and we said in our annual um, results there um, and AGM um, presentation that we don't see that coming back until calendar 24. Uh, so Australia hasn't benefited because the trade has actually um, ceased. Uh, I think there's been one small uh, G-class shipment uh, in the last uh, month, which has been positive, but uh, uh, the volumes are not expected there until, um, you know, into next year at, at the earliest. Um, so yeah. the positive, just to finish off there, the positive is that when that market does return, as we expect, New Zealand should be um, trading again. So uh, the New Zealand dairy uh, herd is uh, in, in high demand uh, and it's a pretty efficient operation over there. So it's a positive when it does come back. So just going back to a new look government there in New Zealand, what are your expectations in terms of the live export trade potentially having a comeback? Uh, look, it's the National Party, which won most seats, uh, went to the election with, with the pledge to resume live exports under what they call a gold standards um, regime. And the two parties, my understanding of the two parties that they're negotiating with currently to form the government, uh, being ACT New Zealand and New Zealand First, um, they've got similar policies to the National Party, which is very, very strongly uh, reopened the trade, however, with this gold standard coming over the top. Um, so, you know, we're very confident that uh, it will occur. It wasn't part of our 100-day plan that the Nationals uh, put forward. So we're, we're not certain about the timing of the, of the implementation, but the intent was very strong before the election. Um, we even had some discussions uh, prior to, um, you know, when they were thinking of uh, phasing the trade out, 
you know, with the, um, the the equivalent of the Department of Ag in New Zealand, who is who's also pro the trade. Uh, and this was a Jacinta Ardern policy, um, uh, 100% uh, that she came over the top and, you know, just didn't want New Zealand to export uh, cattle anymore, uh, be it breeders or, or um, any other form. Yeah. And in terms of the trade potentially coming back, do you think it would be just for breeders or is the National Party mm. potentially going to reinstate exports for slaughter as well? I don't think they have the capacity for the slaughter. They're, they're, they're set up or there. Or the feeder you know, trade as well, perhaps. Look, if they were going to do anything else, it would be sheep. Um, you know, the country has a, has a volume of sheep. They were in the sheep trade previously, and Willard has been involved in that trade. So if they were to open it up beyond breeders, I think sheep uh, would be in the frame. In terms of feeders and, and slaughter cattle uh, of any sort of volume, uh, I don't think they, they have the uh, inherent capacity to do it there. They're set up for you know dairy breeders and and or sheep. And you mentioned the National Party wanting to enforce a gold standard when it comes to exports. Do you assume it would be something similar to SCAS that we see in Australia? No, look, it, look, it may have SCAS. Uh, I think it's more you know the um, discussions we had when they were contemplating um, this the banning of the trade. And all this came. You remember, um, go back in time. All this came about because of the. Uh, the tragedy of the Gulf uh, Livestock One. So then, uh, because that was a New Zealand shipment of, of dairy breeders, their um, politicians and um, uh, bureaucrats had to solve the situation that occurred. And obviously, no one wants that to repeat. So we believe it, uh, the gold standard is, is predominantly about the shipping and the animal, wel- animal welfare and shipping safety. Those two, first and foremost. SCAS may come into play. Um, however, SCAS for breeding cattle is a whole whole different um, scenario than, than it is for feeding feeder cattle and slaughter cattle. SCAS is predominantly around um, the end of life of the livestock rather than, yeah, work with a breeder where you're taking the breeder on for, you know, 10, 12 years. Um, and it's in your interest that that animal is as well kept and well fed and well watered to produce the milk that you want. So I don't really see SCAS being a, a big factor um, at play. It's more about the age of the ships, the quality of the ships, where animal welfare is first and foremost and ship safety uh, is equal. When are you expecting exports to resume and what do you think that first market would be? Oh, not until um, 2024. The, um, there's two parts of that. First of all, New Zealand needs to uh, get through the changes, etc., and that will take time. We're at uh, the end of October. I can't put a time on it. It's not only a 100-day plan, but I expect it, it, it's, it's right up there. It'll be in the first half of next year, and I think that will dovetail with market demand. As I said, there's two things. Uh, you know, it's the New Zealand has to allow it, and also uh, China has to have the demand to take it. So um, that imbalances in, in the Chinese market have, have to be worked through as well. It, it, it's a big operation over there. It's a big market. Uh, there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, these things uh, are hard, you know, especially from over here. Uh, it's not uh, hundred, you know, it's not terribly transparent. Uh, a lot of what goes on in, you know, in the industry at the ground level over there, other than um, we believe long term there is a need there for it, um, and it will return. So it's hard to say this month, this quarter, whatever. Uh, I think it's 2024, not 2025. Um, and for us, the sooner the better. It, it, it's a it's a large volume trade. It's a good trade. Our ships do it very very well. Um, our crew on board uh, look after the cattle. 
um, breeders is especially well. Our track record is is exemplary in that area. That's John Klepek, who's the executive chairman of Wellard and was speaking with Matt Bran as Australia is phasing out live sheep exports. Could, could New Zealand bring back its live export industry? It'll happen sometime next year, according to John Klepek. What do you reckon to that? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Share your thoughts this afternoon. Zero four four eight nine two two six zero four. You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. It's 25 past 12. Australian farmers should expect fertiliser prices to flatline or even fall in the months ahead, according to a new report from Rabobank. But that prediction, a heavy but, a heavy caveat, that prices could go sharply in the other direction if the Israel-Hamas war spreads. That's in the key fertiliser production zone of the Middle East and North Africa. Rabobank analyst Vitor Pastoya says different factors overseas are causing less competition in the market. Well, what we have now for fertilizer prices is that uh, calm, quiet market. So many heavy buyers are out of the market. So we have winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, Brazil is seeding. Uh, Argentina has some problems with drought. So actually, there is no one uh, putting uh, high bids in the market. So on that sense, everything's calm. When we see the forecast for the coming months on that price, we we might check uh, a slightly reduction in price uh, on US dollar terms. You can have up to 10% for nitrogen, up to 20% for phosphate. But then when we add the Aussie dollar that lost some ground in the past uh, weeks and months, that those numbers change to minus four or five to nitrogen and minus 15 for phosphate versus the price as of today. Okay, so you're forecasting a period of, of relative stability for fertiliser pricing then? Uh, stability with some potential for downside, so with the potential for lower prices, not a big potential, but a small one. Of course, assuming that the Israel and Hamas conflict will not disrupt any supply chain or will not put the crude oil price through the roof. Okay, let's talk about the Israel-Hamas conflicts. Can you just explain why that's significant and, and how much of a contributor that region specifically and then the broader uh, Middle East, North Africa region is in fertiliser markets? Yes, so we have a few strong players on that region as a whole. So Israel by itself exports between 6 to 8% of global supply of phosphate and potash, so it's an important country. Egypt, it's a very heavy player in the nitrogen market and in the natural gas. And then when we go a little bit further, Jordan exports a little bit of phosphate. Uh, Algeria, Libya, they also export a lot of energy. And so when we put all those countries together, we have a substantial share of fertilizer, around 20 to 25% of global supply coming from that region. And besides the problem with the war, with people losing their lives, uh, losing their homes and so on. Many politicians are concerned of the potential impacts in food inflation as we have experienced with the Black Sea War or with COVID in the past three years. Okay, so 
first up expecting stability or perhaps a discounted fertiliser price, but, but with that caveat, the Israel-Hamas war caveat, that sounds like a pretty big caveat considering most expectations are that that, that war's uh, going to continue for, for some time to come and also could, well, uh, I suppose, uh, broaden in the region. Yes, it's a big caveat, but uh, at the moment, the day we are speaking now, there is no ground offensive in that region. So as long as the conflict between Israel military forces and Hamas in the Gaza Strip remains just on that area, we are not expecting any upside on the fertilizer price. So that is that is also another caveat is like how vast the conflict can be, not how long it can be, as you said. It's Rabobank analyst Vitor Pastoya speaking with Angus Varley. So prices, fertiliser prices, possibly to flatline or fall, but depending on how much this war spreads between Israel and Hamas uh, as to whether... It could turn around and go the other way. It's half past 12 on the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon and Tony Carr is along with the news headlines. Hi, Tony. Good afternoon, Michelle. Israeli warplanes are continuing to strike targets in Gaza, including near the largest hospital in the city. Israel says Hamas rulers have a command post under the hospital, but has not provided evidence of that. It comes as eight agencies warn of a mounting humanitarian disaster for Palestinians on the ground, with thousands of Gaza residents breaking into warehouses to grab basic survival items. The National Farmers Federation has welcomed the federal government's move to walk away from trade negotiations with the European Union. The deal would have given Australia meat, dairy and sugar producers greater access to the European market but would allow the EU to impose naming rights on certain products. Trade Minister Don Farrell says the offer on the table still isn't good enough. And a prominent wheat belt couple have appeared before court for allegedly defrauding the York Community Resource Centre. Former employee, 41-year-old Robin Garrett, has been charged with 11 counts, including seven counts of fraud by forgery and property laundering. Her husband, 40-year-old Ashley Garrett, has been charged with property laundering and benefiting from fraud, as well as an unrelated firearms storage charge. Michelle, more news at one o'clock. Thank you very much, Tony. 29 to 1. Coming up before 1 o'clock, we'll head off to the Muche cattle sale for those results. And a major Australian fruit trader and grower has copped some penalties, about $25,000 worth, all to do with lack of transparency with the growers around how much their, their fruit was sold for. We'll take a look at that and I wonder what impact it could have on market agents elsewhere. You'll hear more about it this afternoon. If you'd like to get in touch with the Country Hour today, 0448922604 is the SMS. Let's get the weather though. Luke Huntington is with you. Let's kick it off in the north. Luke, how are things looking up here? Uh, yeah, hey, hey Michelle. Um, so looking in the northern parts of the state, there's not too much going on. We've got that continued uh, heat over the Kimberley and Pilbara and the northern interior at the moment. Um, some of the coastal areas are a little bit cooler with the earliest sea breeze, um, but we're still getting into sort of the mid to high 30s along the coast and into the four, low 40s uh, further inland. Um, and there is quite a bit of um, smoke around through the Kimberley region at the moment with quite a lot of ongoing fires. 
um, but no no um, precipitation today throughout the northern half of the state. Uh, heading into heading into tomorrow, the only um, significant change is we'll, we might see a return to isolated showers and thunderstorms over the north, far northern and western parts of the Kimberley. So probably near the coast between Columbaroo and Broome is probably the the spot where they might get a um, thunderstorm in the afternoon. That'll sort of be more through the inland locations rather than the coast. Um, and not too much rainfall with those storms, so it wouldn't cool things down too much. Um, and then heading into Wednesday, those thunderstorms uh, are a possibility again over the northern Kimberley, probably extending a little bit further east towards the Kununurra area um, on Wednesday afternoon. Again, not too much rainfall associated with those uh, storms. On Thursday, still expecting um, storms over much of the Kimberley, but probably not over the southwestern part. So um, the areas around the sort of the Dampier Peninsula, Broome area will probably miss out on any activity on the Thursday. Um, and then similar conditions on Friday, all, all over the northern and eastern Kimberley, we're expecting some thunderstorms, but again, not too much rainfall with those storms. Um, and then each day uh, from tomorrow, it does warm up a little bit through the... Uh, inland Kimberley uh, getting up to sort of 44, 45 um, through inland areas from Broome. So there could be some extreme, uh, sorry, not extreme, severe heatwave conditions through that western part of the Kimberley uh, starting from Wednesday, just with those temperatures rising through that area. Um, but as I mentioned, the coastal locations will be a little bit cooler, so not including um, places like Broome. Yeah, it is really cool at the moment. I'm physically in Port Hedland. I think the Bureau app says it's 30 degrees, which for me, I need a jumper to be outside at 30 <laughs> degrees um, at the moment and just a top of 38 today, which is very, very cool. Or maybe I've been up here a little bit too long. Uh, but thank you for that, Luke. How about in the south? I'm, I'm sure they're not expecting a week of 45. No, definitely not. Um, so, uh, yeah, we do have a new ridge coming in south of the state at the moment. So an onshore flow is um, creating some quite cloudy conditions over the far southern southern coastal districts. And there could have been just a light shower or two just in that, um, in that area mainly uh, this morning, but still possible into the mid-afternoon. But then it should clear by evening. Um, and then heading into tomorrow, the ridge dominates the other uh, southwest land division and southern parts of the state. So uh, we're expecting a little bit warmer temperatures uh, through the central west region, getting into the low um, 30s through some parts, um, 34 at Geraldton there tomorrow. Um, and then warmer throughout much of the southwest land division, really, um, getting back into the mid-20s throughout the um, great southern high, tw high 20s throughout the wheat belt. Uh, the only weather for the Southwest Land Division tomorrow, we are forecasting some um, dry thunderstorms uh, late in the day, uh, most likely over southeastern parts of the Central West District, um, over much of the Wheat Belt, and maybe just in the very far northeast Lower West District. So those thunderstorms possibility late uh, in the day, uh, but they're, they're most likely going to be dry thunderstorms, so little to no rainfall. Um, but uh, we don't we know what happens when we uh, sometimes when we do get those dry thunderstorms, it can create a light, uh, lightning risk and leading to uh, fire ignitions. So hopefully that does not happen uh, through that area. Uh, and then on Wednesday, those thunderstorms uh, will contract a little bit further eastwards. Uh, the main area will be that, that central wheat belt region, uh, but that, those thunderstorms will probably clear that central wheat belt um, area in the morning period. Um, and then heading into uh, Thursday, those thunderstorms would have cleared out. But at the same time, we're going to get a warning, warming trend over the southwest land division. So 
much of the um, much of the area getting up into the sort of the uh, the low to mid thirties by uh, Wednesday and Thursday. And then uh, Friday, we are seeing quite hot conditions throughout the central west district. So uh, a lot of places in the high uh, 30s, um, wheat belt getting into the mid 30s and great southern low 30s. Down, down into the southwest on Friday, sort of around um, the Bustleton, Manjimup area, they're also expecting temperatures close to 30 degrees, um, but no no precipitation expected. So basically just a warming trend for the southwest land division um, throughout the rest of the week. And the warnings around today? Yeah, we've only got some um, coastal wind warnings um, covering uh, parts of the southwest of the state. Very good. Thank you for that, Luke. Thanks. Luke Huntington from the Bureau of Meteorology. And Richard Hudson is here with the rainfall. Is there, has there been much about Hutto? No, not much at all. From 9am Friday through until 9am today, no rain at all anywhere in the northern and eastern forecast districts. And there wasn't much to talk about in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts either. So nothing at all in the Central West, nothing over one mil in the Lower West. A tiny bit more in the Southwest though. Beetle up seven, Carlotta five, four acres six. Millian up, Walpole had five mils. Uh, Willie Abrup and Yanmar both had six. And then in the Southern Coastal Region, a few places had between one and three mils, and then it was topped by Kimberley and King River that both had four mils. Nothing recorded in the central wheat belt, and then in the Great Southern region, there wasn't anything above one mil. So, yeah, not heaps to talk about. There you go. I mean, I guess it is that time of year. Thank you very much for that, Hutto. It's 22 to 1. A few texts coming through, 0448 uh, Earlier you heard from the head of Wellard who was taking a really close look at the political situation in New Zealand because his tip is that with the Nationals winning the election and, and potentially forming a coalition government uh, in the next week or so, that live exports will return to New Zealand. They were phased out, I think it was April this year, at 0448 A few people in touch on the SMS. The Weather Wally says that one recommendation in the fiasco of the live sheep trade phase-out uh, report, which was handed down last week, this is the, the Australian report, uh, was to truck thousands of sheep interstate from Western Australia to South Australia and Eastern States abattoirs because we don't have capacity in WA. The Weather Wally says consider the whole woke-driven woke driven labour policy of the phase-out was based on animal welfare issues. A sheep on a ship is fed and watered constantly in air-conditioned comfort. No city-based politician or woke activist has seen a sheep on a truck for three days across the Nullarbor. Wendy in Albany says it was not just Jacinta, Jacinda Ardern who put the final stop to live cattle exports, it was the people of New Zealand who demanded it. This was after years of protests over the constant loss of sheep and cattle at sea, the final straw being in September 2020 uh, with that vessel where thousands of cattle and the crew and vets uh, were lost at sea in that typhoon. Thank you for your text as well, 0448 Great to hear from you this afternoon. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour.
BHP's Pilbara train drivers could begin strike action as early as next week as part of ongoing union negotiations. For the past two years, the WA Mining and Energy Union has been negotiating with BHP to reach a new employee agreement which would provide for things like guaranteed annual pay increases, improved access to training, better accommodation and flight assistance. Union Secretary Greg Busson says the union would like to negotiate a deal in meetings with the mining giant this week, but protected action hasn't been ruled out. Nearly two years now we've been negotiating and sort of made some ground, but some of the things that are important to the members um, haven't been dealt with, so they felt that they had no other option but to go down this path. So can you tell us what are those things that are important to the members? Obviously, it's... it's um guaranteed annual pay increases, which is unusual in the pool because generally they have a set rate and then people's wage increases are determined on a supposedly through some certain qualifications, but we know that that's not um, always adhered to and uh, some favouritism and stuff like that falls into place. Also, we want some standards around some access and provision of training and how people access training. Uh, We want proper consultation between the employees' representatives and the company regarding any issues that members may have. Uh, accommodation standards, we, we're seeking this because the, with the fluid starts that the rail drivers get, um, they don't always, they're not on the same time frames as the miners and that. So having them, we want them sort of in a special area so that they're all not getting disturbed by other people when they're um, on a fluid start. Also, it's application for flight assistance for those people doing uh, FIFO work. We want a prop, proper process there. Uh, we want dispute resolution process uh, that involves arbitration within the commission and also um, the process around how rosters are changed. We want some proper rulings around that and some proper guarantees about how those standards are going to be set. And so, so far, you know, the the vote was taken last week. What what happens next? Are there more negotiations that are going to happen before any industrial action does take place? Yeah, well, so under the under the Parbo rules now, prior to any action being granted, we then have to both parties have to con- commit to undergo a conciliation conference, which we held last Monday with Deputy President Beaumont presided over. At those meetings, both parties put their case. As a sign of good faith, we've committed to two extra additional bargaining meetings on the 1st and 2nd of November. And as part of that, in good faith, we have committed also that we won't launch any or make application for any protected action until those meetings are concluded. So once those meetings are concluded, uh, we'll then consult with our membership and take direction from them where they want to head. So if it does get to that stage where the members do vote for protected industrial action, what actions would that or could that involve? Well, we have got under the parvo that we put out, there are a number of questions that members voted on about taking those actions and the majority of people support them. So we've got a range of stoppages. Um, It's not just limited stoppages. There are some other duties that members perform and some stuff that they do do that um, we can can restrict some of those activities happening. So there's a a range of different options we've got. It's not just limited to stoppages. Just hopefully that obviously no one wants to get in the trenches, but if it takes, that's what it takes. But we just hope that when we do hold discussions this week that BHP come forward with an offer that could be acceptable to our members and we'll um, avoid any action having to be taken. 
That's Greg Boston. He's the WA Secretary of the Mining and Energy Union and he was speaking with Charlie Mills about potential strike action if these negotiations don't go favourably for the union this week. In response, a BHP spokesperson says the company has put forward a comprehensive offer to its rail operations and rail academy teams that fairly rewards them for their service and valued contribution. There is a process in place with the MEU to finalise the new agreement Agreement with further meetings scheduled this week. A spokesperson also said that notification of protected industrial action hadn't been given and the union had committed to BHP that it wouldn't notify the company of any action until at least this Friday, the, the uh, 3rd of November. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's quarter to one. Fruit grower and trader Nutrano will pay almost $25,000 in penalties but will not admit to contravening the Horticulture Code after the ACCC accused it of failing to tell growers how much it was selling their fruit for. Nutrano acts as an agent for other growers and markets and sells their produce for a commission to supermarkets. ACCC Deputy Chair Mick Keogh says growers need to know the market value of their produce. The two issues that we identified there were firstly that it wasn't clear from their produce agreements with growers what the specifications were in terms of the quality of the produce and so that um, is a requirement of the code and of course uh, it's a necessary arrangement so that growers are clear um, how their produce will be assessed and then the second uh, deficiency was that the grower's statements in other words the statements that Nutrana was providing back to growers didn't have a sale price for their goods so uh, these are merchant arrangements where growers uh, send their produce to the agent and then wait for the agent to sell them before they find out um, what proceeds they may, may get. Um, in this case, Neutrano wasn't telling them the price at which Neutrano sold those goods on, those produce on, and therefore it was very uh, difficult for the growers to understand whether they were getting a fair price or not. Neutrano hasn't admitted that uh, they're guilty, but uh, they've accepted to pay the uh, infringement notices and enter into a court enforceable undertaking to address some other issues around the contract terms they had with growers. If Neutrano wasn't telling growers what it was selling their produce for, why? Why not? Why wouldn't it disclose that? Uh, it's an ongoing question. It, this applies in the case where growers enter into what's referred to as a merchant agreement with the agent. So. Uh, the merchant agreement uh, essentially involves the agent receiving the produce, so it might be uh, bulk citrus or something like that, and then the merchant is responsible for selling that into the market at the appropriate time. So there will be a storage element uh, associated with it. There may be ripening in the case of some fruit, and then there will be selling that produce into the market at um, a future time progressively. The requirement of the code is that in those sort of arrangements, uh, the agent has to inform the grower what price they sold the produce for. Uh, and then obviously, usually the arrangement is that the grower receives that price less, whatever the agent's fees and commission is usually somewhere around 15%. So it's very important that the agent actually informs the grower 
what price their produce sold for. Otherwise, all the grower gets is a cheque which says, you know, produce sold, here's your money, uh, and the grower has no way of knowing um, whether what they're getting is a fair return for um, the price that it's sold for or not. Okay, so in general terms then, not not specific to this case, but in general terms, if a grower uh, doesn't know what their produce is ultimately sold for, could it be the case that that, that agent is taking more than the agreed-upon commission? That's that's the difficulty, yeah, absolutely. That's the ACCC Deputy Chair Mick Keogh, who was speaking with Angus Varley, and Neutrano has been contacted for comment 11 to 1. Could you imagine switching from being an electrician to a mushroom farmer? That's what Reese Villiers has done. He and his wife lived in Geraldton, but in June this year, they set up a small mushroom growing business at Pemberton in the southwest. He says so far it's been a steep learning curve. Down here in the southwest, it's probably relatively new to everyone. Um, there's not many growers down here, or if any, if they are, they're. I suppose, extremely small scale or growing in their bathrooms. But, yeah, it has kicked off. We've only been going since June, July. Started off doing about two kilos a week in a tent, and then now we're probably doing, I'd say, around 20-odd kilos of assorted mushrooms a week um, to restaurants and IGA, et cetera. So, yeah, it's slowly building for us. Tell us how you started. Only a few months, you're an electrician by trade. Like, how did you get into mushrooms? Yeah, I guess I've always had an interest in um, horticulture, uh, mainly in soil mycology. And then, yeah, I had a mate in Geraldton who is a vegetarian and started growing his own mushrooms for his own purpose. And he gave us a grow bag one day of lion's mane. And I guess that just kicked off the interest in the whole mycelium world. And then, yeah, we just we built from that. Down here, it's a, well, I wouldn't say easy, but a way of getting into the industry with a relatively low financial input. Um, and then, yeah, as, as money comes in or a name gets out there, we can build from that. Tell us about your setup. You're using what was an, an abattoir on a farming property? Yeah, correct. This is an abattoir shut down in the early 2000s, I think, when all the rules changed about processing your own meat. Um, so, yeah, we talked to the landowner and he was hap- you know, more than happy to, to let us in. We currently incubate in here, inoculate our blocks and fruit them all. Um, so it has been good. We're starting to outgrow the space a little bit, um, which is good for us. But, yeah, eventually we'll have to find somewhere a bit bigger. What varieties do you, you grow and sell? Yeah, we grow a lot. Um, we tend to grow with the seasons because we're pretty limited on, I guess, retrofitting this building to our needs. So, yeah, we grow anything from pink oysters, yellow oysters, lion's mane, sword belt mushroom, black king pearl oyster pearl oyster, butterscotch oyster, lots of varieties really. Try and give everyone, I guess, a taste of everything that you, you, know, you can get your hands on. But yeah, that's pretty much all we're focusing on at the moment. And you mentioned local markets, restaurants. You're gearing up for uh, big markets in, in Manjimup later in the year and you trek to Margaret River to do a drop-off. Like, tell us about your customer base. Yeah, I just got back from Margaret River this morning. So we picked this morning and then um, shoot over there to Murray's uh, restaurant in Margaret River. Um, we deliver to them on a fortnightly basis. I guess the hardest part for us down here is distribution. So because we're small scale and we're trying to keep our costs down for our clients, um, you know, it pulls me away from electrical contracting a little bit. But if we've got to hand deliver our product to get it known, then you know, I'm happy to put in, put in the effort.
That's Reese Villier who runs Deadwood Mushrooms in Pemberton. He was speaking with Ellie Honeybone. And if you'd like to see some of the mushrooms the couple is growing at Pemberton, just search ABC Rural and Mushrooms and you'll find Ellie's story on the ABC Rural website. It's eight to one. A group of former military men are helping other veterans find new purpose after their defence service through farming. They're growing avocados and ginger. Landline reporter Courtney Wilson has this story. Angelo Leonardi appreciates the value of a hard day's work. One of my favourite things to do is just pruning. Taking pruning shears, take a pole, chainsaw and just go on for the day. I don't have my phone, no one can call me and I find that really soothing. There is perhaps no more routine driven workforce than where he began his working life in the military. I joined in 2006. Being a, a second generation Australian, it was something that I wanted to do for family reasons, as well as at the time there was a need. I had an awesome career. I, I was very fortunate to serve in um, East Timor and in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan and serve some awesome guys. So I was only in for about five years, but it was intense for a short period and became a, a really key chapter of my life, which was character building, but it was just a chapter. After leaving the army in 2011, Angelo faced something many ex-service personnel grapple with. When you leave the army, you have to leave your image at the same time and develop a new image. Some of us joined when we were really young. So you can be a young adult, you know, 25 to 30 years old and lose that, that image that you did build and have to reintroduce yourself to the world, which can be really hard. Hard, but not impossible and made much easier when you find something else you're passionate about. For Angelo, who grew up on the land, that was always going to be farming. And it was kind of a natural progression for me to get back into farming. And I wanted to bring my army friends with me and we've done pretty well so far, staying together. Cherry Creek Estate is near Blackbutt in Queensland's South Burnett. The main game here is avocados. There are about 300 hectares of managed orchards. <laughs> Alongside Angelo is his older brother, Salvatore, who spent 20 years working in the mining industry, and another ex-army mate, Cody Dennis. Angelo's a visionary. He's big picture this, big picture that. I am the little picture guy. I'm the details, pragmatic, more realistic of what's happening here right now at this very moment. Sammy, he's a workhorse. He is the workhorse. doesn't matter if it's big picture, little picture, he just gets it done. The first year, in their first farm, it was just the three boys and about 2,000 trees. We harvested 72 tonnes and we just did it ourselves in between work and other jobs. Fast forward to now and they've acquired half a dozen farms. The three men have around an 80% share with the remaining 20% split across a group of other veterans. From 72 tonnes of avocados in that first season, this year they're on track to harvest around 1,000 tonnes. To say it's been a steep learning curve is putting it mildly. Curve is a strong word. I would say vertical ascent it's been. Not to mention a huge change from the army. Cody Dennis, like many other former military personnel, found himself at a loss after leaving. Getting straight out of a combat corps, I couldn't think of what I wanted to do or, or didn't realise the skill sets I had. 
couldn't even get a job as a security guard at a shopping centre. Now, Cody oversees the packing shed. It's a big, busy job. At the peak of their season, he manages up to 20 staff. We would have had around a semi-truck a day leaving full of packed fruit. Approximately 80 to 90 bins of avocados were picked per day. So, yeah, it was quite busy. That was Courtney Wilson with that report. And the story was on Landline yesterday on ABC TV. If you missed it, you can catch it back on iview. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smell. Join me for The World Today. Israel's retaliation expands in Gaza amid Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's warnings it will be a long and difficult war. Free trade talks between Australia and the European Union collapse, both sides walking away after years of trying. And Wallabies coach Eddie Jones to depart. So what's next for Rugby Australia? Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. Western Australia will introduce a, introduce a staged approach to the implementation of those electronic identification requirements for sheep and goats. Deepert has said that in order to aid a smooth transition to the new mandatory system, sheep and goats born after the 1st of January 2025 will require an EID tag before leaving the property or before they reach six months of age. But under the new arrangements, sheep and goats born before the start of 2025 will only require an EID tag when departing a property or facility such as a feedlot from the 1st of July 2026. I know that all sounds a bit confusing, but if you would like more details, just head to the DPIRD website or you can just probably Google EID tag DPIRD and find that information. A couple of minutes away from one, 1,266 head of cattle were sold at the Muche sale yards this morning. That included around 130 calves. Terry Birkin has been at the sale. Terry, can you run through the details, please? Cattle numbers were back this week with pastoral cattle less prominent and good runs from local calves. There were the usual offerings of light frame pastoral calves plus several pens of locally fed pastoral steers while cow supplies were limited. Values for local weaner and yearlings improved today mainly due to quality and condition and breeding but prices quickly fell off with less fat cover. The cow market remained firm while slaughter bulls gained 8 to 10 cents a kilo. Local weaner steers under 330 kilos ranged from 180 to 298 cents and over 330 kilos sold up to 290 cents a kilo. Lighter local heifers in the same weight range made 100 to 180 cents but improved over 330 kilos returning 150 to 260 cents a kilo. Light condition yearling steers started at 152 cents and in better condition sold up to 290 cents while yearling heifers started at 136 cents through to 246 cents a kilo. Pastoral steer cows range from 128 to 192 cents and the pastoral heifers uh, from 78 cents to 172 cents a kilo. Grown steers and heifers remain firm with steers selling from 140 to 184 cents and heifers from 100 cents to 196 cents a kilo. The few light uh, weight cows available were making 80 cents to 120 cents while medium to heavy cows returned 120 to 170 cents a kilo. Shipping bulls were back 10 cents, with the best of them reaching 256 cents. However, heavier bulls improved overall, selling from 140 cents to 182 cents a kilo. 
This is Terry Bergen for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much for that, Terry. Those numbers again, 1,266 head of cattle sold, including around 130 calves at the Mouche sale yards today. That's it from me. Belinda Varischetti will be back with you from 12 o'clock tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. It's time for the news. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.